Developmental language disorder. One in 14. DLD. The DLD project. The Talking DLD podcast. Brought to you by the DLD project. Hi everyone, it's Sean here. Do you use practice-based evidence in your clinical work? Today we're talking with Celine and Rosie from Western Sydney Speech Pathology about therapy planning and how to build practice-based evidence into your work. Welcome everyone uh, to this month's episode of the Talking DLD podcast, which was kind of uh, a bit of a spur of the moment conversation at our recent Speech Pathology Australia conference. So I want to welcome the wonderful Celine and Rosie. Um, Celine, actually, I might get you to start. Can you tell us a little about your connection to DLD? And then we'll throw to Rosie. Hi, Sean. Um, well, I'm a speech pathologist who has been working with children with DLD uh, for about 11 years, mostly in private practice. I'm the director of Western Sydney Speech Pathology, where both Rosie and I work. During my time, uh, not just as a director, but as also an employee at the company, I've done quite a bit of advocating for children with DLD. So I was part of the Senate inquiry and that happened in, I think, 2014. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say yeah. sounds about 2013, 2014, 2013, around then, yeah. Yeah, and I was able to speak in front of the Senate. I've also done a lot of advocating throughout my local community. So I ran projects like Hush, which was at my local library and sponsored by the local Rotary on what it's like to not be able to always express Um, what you needed and we made like a community artwork but the idea there was that you couldn't talk while you were asking for the things to create the artwork so advocating for kids who and people who have difficulties with communicating amazing thank you well rosie you've already got a little bit of a preface but can you tell us a little bit about your connection to dld yeah yeah so um Similar to Celine, we actually went to uni together. So we've both been working. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes. (laughs) There you go. That's new information Um, for me. Yeah, for about 11 years. And during that time, I've been working in a range of different types of services supporting children with DLD. I've also completed my PhD in 2016, where we looked at late talking toddlers. So these are children who appear to be developing appropriately across other areas but are not speaking very much and so many of these children will go on to have DLD or DLD concomitant with speech sound disorders as well so quite passionate about that early what DLD might look like early on for late talking toddlers as well. Wonderful. And I love some looking at some of the your research around that early talkers because often as you said you know it's actually really hard to kind of predict sometimes, you know, mm. which one, which children are going to need those ongoing supports. Um, and so, you know, of course, the earlier the better, but we know it's a bit tricky, which isn't necessarily what we're here to talk about, but I do love that about some of the work that you've done. So yeah. thank you. Yeah, very tricky. <laughs> so you're both speech pathologists. You're working together um, at Western Sydney Speech Pathology. And you've got clients with DLD, I imagine, on your caseloads. Um, what sorts of things do you need to consider as a clinician in your day-to-day work? And this is open to whomever likes to answer that question first. Take it away. Well, one of the things that we actually found was, that was really challenging, when I work with a child with DLD, because DLD is lifelong, I was constantly just seeing them week after week after week. Sometimes they got a bit of a break during the school holidays, but then after that, they'd come back in and I'd see them again as a one-to-one. And it burns out everybody. Like they feel burnt out. So it's always something that I have been trying to find a solution to. Rosie sort of came on board. One of the things that I asked her to do was like, can you please support my team to figure out how to work with these kids with DLD. I guess I came in from a a university clinic as well. So in university clinics, you typically do have more of like a block therapy approach and the clients are are used to that. And we make the students write these, you know, massive management plans um, where they outline all their goals and outcome measures. And, but then you get into the real world and it's like, how do we, apply some of that where you know we make them do a lot of paperwork to something that's more realistic and achievable when you've got a full caseload so that was sort of the task that 
I set, you know, myself and Celine sort of said, can you help me work this out, is how to move towards more of a block therapy approach in, in our private practice and also create some sort of service delivery model that incorporates really goal-focused blocks and, and outcome measures. So one of the big things we've moved towards in our practice is trying to have blocked therapy and that there's different options within those blocks of what therapy might look like. Um, and I think this is in keeping with the idea that, yes, DLD is persistent and lifelong, but children's needs change over time when they're three and then when they're five and when they're 10 and when they're an adolescent and a young adult. And we we see kids across all of all of those ages. And so we were trying to work out different options of of what block therapy looks like. So sometimes it might be seeing your speech pathologist every single week, but at other times it might be a group. So one of the things we did was really uh, try to design some key group therapies to support our children with DLD. One of them has been a storytelling group that's been really popular and we've used a lot of evidence informed from personal narrative protocols and story champs, those different evidence-informed therapy approaches. We've also done things like vocabulary groups, essay writing groups, and early literacy groups. So a range of different groups that can support our children at different points in their childhood. So that's been really helpful, I think, because our therapists have given us the feedback that it's nice to be able to put a child in a group when you've been working so long with them one-on-one and you're like feeling a bit like what's next and and the parents are a bit might be a bit burnt out from just bringing them every single week and then suddenly they're in a group and they're socializing with other kids and it's got a whole different feel to it um yeah and the other thing that we've done is really implement the idea of intentional breaks and I know Sean you've talked about this in the podcast before oh, I do love intentional breaks yeah <laughs> Yeah, and I think that's super important because it's unrealistic to expect a child to always be coming to therapy. And it's been helpful to allow permission, I think, for our parents by saying, this is what this is, like giving it a name, like this is an intentional break, makes them feel like it's part of the, like it is part of the service delivery model. There's definitely now this fluidity in the way that children move across different um, options within the service delivery model. What was really interesting about that is that that movement was actually something that everybody at the start was just like, oh, I'm never going to be able to fit that many kids into my caseload again and they're never, I'm never going to see them. Or like, I, I don't know, when they finish the group, what will I do? I will have do. all of these clients on my caseload. Mm-hmm. And then... February rolls along, everybody's in a group and no one has one-to-one clients anymore. And I'm like, guys, this is the moment where you go on the wait list and find find someone. (laughs) So, um, and parents really appreciated that break, you know, being able to just go, yep, you know what, we're not coming in now, but you haven't forgotten us. We're going to come in in a term's time to come see our therapist and we're going to give it, we're really going to give it our best go during that time. And then, you know, then maybe yeah. have another break. Yeah. yeah. I love this because often parents describe it as, you know, the speech pathology never ending piece of string. Mm. You know, if you've got a lifelong need, um, that means that, you know, you're going to need adjustments or supports. And as you've said, Rosie, supports are totally different at different ages and stages. Um, if somebody said to me, can you please rock up and pay for something like this every week, but we're never sure what the end point is? Mm man, that's exhausting, right? You know, that's a really fatiguing mental, you know, um, strain. So the idea of having these, you know, blocks and intentional breaks and, um, you know, alternating between what you need, I think that it just creates, A, some interest and variety, but also, you know, a really cohesive service. So that's sounding like, you know, Surely nothing can go wrong. And I'm sure things did, did go wrong. And, I'm sure, and we'll get to that. I'm sure there were lessons to be learned. For me, Sean, what it's also allowed me to do was to like use those intentional breaks intentionally for myself as well. Like mm-hmm. I realized, you know what, maybe rather than you are on a break, but I can connect with some of your other members of your team. 
that we often are like, oh, I never have time to connect with them. But because we've deliberately given our clients a break, you have that mental space to kind of, you know what, I, I am going to do some follow-up. And, and you can keep the parents in the loop. They're really appreciative because when they come back, you've got a, a much more cohesive, you've spoken to other people. You have a much clearer idea of what you're doing with their child. Yeah. And trying to pull in all those voices takes time, mm. you know, mm, to build a cohesive plan, doesn't it? I, I'm sort of preface this a little bit at the beginning, but I, I met you both at the Speech Pathology Australia conference earlier this year, and you did this great workshop on practice-based evidence. And I was w- wondering if you might actually tell our listeners a little bit about what you mean by practice-based evidence, and how does this actually fit in with this service delivery model that you've just described for your clinical work? We talked in our workshop about practice-based evidence, being about collecting data in your everyday work to inform your ongoing clinical decision-making. So it's data within the real and the messy world. So I think sometimes when we read research studies, there's very carefully selected like conditions around inclusion criteria for the children that are in the study. It might be that the treatment has been done like three times a week which we know in most of our clinical workplaces, like at least in Australia, that might not be possible to do three times a week. And our clients might not necessarily look like the clients that are in the research study. They might not be exactly the same. Sometimes, yeah, we can't replicate all the things in the research study, but that doesn't mean that we can't use that evidence from those studies to inform our you know, our decisions around what therapy approach we're going to take. But what we can do is start to take our own data on that client or on that group of clients to see, is this working when there are all these messy external factors going on here, that iterative process that then can inform our future work with other similar clients. So we've got a couple of examples to share. One is a little boy that I was working with who was three years old and he was autistic and he only recently started saying a couple of words. We'd done some previous work working on joint attention and engaging and finding those motivating activities and then we really moved wanting to look more at um, building his vocabulary. So I wanted to use a focus stimulation approach There's not a lot in the research on focus stimulation for autistic toddlers. And so that's where I was like, okay, well, I can take my own data on what's going on here. So with our blocked therapy, it works really nicely because we develop specific goals and outcome measures for a certain period. It might be 10 weeks, it might be 20 weeks, and that's our block. And so at the start of that block, I took some measures of his vocabulary skills, both within the session and from parent report using early vocabulary checklist. I did that a couple of times, which helped me get an idea of like his baseline or what things were looking like before we started intervention. So by doing two or three baselines and seeing that, you know, he didn't really have any verbs, this was sort of where his number of words he had was fairly stable across those baselines. And then I started to implement the intervention and then collect those outcome measures regularly throughout the therapy block, but not necessarily every session as well. So one of the challenges in, again, in the real world is that you're always balancing like time and data, because if you take too much data, it takes all your time away from doing your therapy. But if you don't take enough data, it's hard to make those clinical decisions. So we've sort of been doing the baselines and then maybe like a mid-block probe. It depends on the client. Sometimes you can do them more, but for this particular client, and then I did end block probes with using those same measures. And so I could see that the approach was working because suddenly his vocabulary was building, his verbs were taking a bit longer. So it informed my clinical decision-making by being able to, you know, take those outcome measures. And and that's what I see as an example of of practice-based evidence. Celine, do you want to share a little bit about one of your group? Well, one of the things that we had challenges with at the start of 2021 is because it's like COVID was a bit late approaching Australia was -hmm. that we we were sort of going into a lockdown around July and one of the things that we wanted to do was to actually look into groups 
and we wanted to implement robust vocabulary intervention within a group context simply because it is actually presented to a class in general, like how it's um, usually been presented in the literature that I've read. So we wanted to create a group, but we obviously couldn't get people in the same space because, you know, that became illegal. So I decided to try this online with a bunch of high schoolers. Rosie was looking at my caseload and going, you have a lot of kids with really similar goals. Let's, let's put them together in a group. It makes sense that you would you would do it online because they're in high school they have to learn online anyway and you know and none of this robust vocabulary intervention that i've seen has ever been done on an online group so i had to create measures at the beginning and at the end of the group to see if it was actually working and if anyone got anything out of it it wasn't perfect my outcome measures <laughs> but um i think i got the data that i needed to know like you know where each of them needed to go and every single one of them the kids that were in that group, it felt very heterogeneous, that first group. Once I saw them together, it was actually a lot easier to go, ah, that's what you're struggling with. And then to actually pull them out and just go, okay, because this is what you're struggling with. But it's not very evident when you work with them one-on-one -on -one because you really scaffold everything for them up until that point. So it was really like, for me, it was a massive revelation to, to do like online groups. Yeah, certainly yeah. I can think of, you know, I really love, I'm probably one of the weirdos that I love group therapies. Mm -hmm. You know, I just think actually working um, with small groups or even slightly larger groups, but I'm just, you know, thinking about that online component and you're right, how much we actually, without even probably realising we do it, is scaffolding and supporting one-on-one -on -one that all of a sudden in a group of four or five or however many you've got, you can't um, necessarily adjust everything for every single person and then they are actually not just interacting with you as the clinician they're interacting with each other yeah. you know people can't see me gesturing but I'm pointing all over the place <laughs> at this point in time um but you know that actually seeing them in that connected space can create that understanding of where everybody's at and actually one thing I love is that you can kind of go actually you're really good at this and actually being able to have a peer model yes. you know yeah. that they're actually seeing not just a fully fledged adult you know, speech pathologists doing it, that actually they're seeing their peers do it. And I think that's actually a really cool outcome. I'm going to come right back to another point that you both have raised in your examples is I love the fact that we're talking about outcome measurements, because I think speech pathologists, we are fantastic assessors, right? Aren't we? Like we, we you give me a standardised or non-standardised mm -hmm. measure and I could administer that like anything, you know, I'm good at that. And then the intervention planning, I think most of us, you know, we love, because that's the bulk of what we do, but it's actually that reminding ourselves that we actually need to set a target and mm. then we need to measure it. And often I think that we take it quite personally, don't we, if we don't achieve that target and trying to unpack what does it mean, you know, when they haven't actually achieved what we thought mm. they were going to achieve, mm. right? I definitely think that pairing your goals with outcome measures is something that we're not as confident, like we're super confident, like setting the goals, but mm -hmm. then taking the time to think, how will I know if we've achieved this goal? And when will I take that data? Like, and how often will I take that data? Those sorts of questions we're still sort of getting on top of as, as a profession. And that's where with our blocks and having therapy plans, these documents that we create at the beginning of the block, we think about goals and outcome measures at the same time. And we have the headspace to do that. So, you know, we've actually created a way for these therapy plans to be built as part of our service delivery model as well and take the time to think, well, do I need to create a probe for this? Do I need to go and find a intelligibility scale and different outcome measures that might match that goal? And that's a process in itself. Blaine and I were saying, you know, Sometimes at the end of the therapy block, you go, okay, that measure wasn't quite sensitive enough to the progress. I know that they've made progress, but mm. I haven't chosen quite the right measure yes. to be able to show that progress. So one of the papers that's been super helpful in thinking about outcome measures that we'll, we'll link in the notes is um, Baker et al. 2022 and um they did a systematic review about outcome measures in speech sound disorder, um, but it can be applied across range of practice areas. And what it talks about is um, 
how you can have outcome measures that are more proximal or closer to the goal that, that you are working on, but also measures that are a bit more distal or further away from your goal. And that having both of these uh, is actually really useful to see if you're making real world change, there's generalization in, in your goal. So I'd give an example, like say you were working on robust vocabulary intervention and you had certain words that you were working on you might have chosen explain and discuss I know we did some essay words in in one of our groups and one of the things we did is we asked the children the definitions of those words in in our outcome as part of our outcome measure testing what we realized I remember at the end of the first group is Okay, so now they know the definitions of of those two or three words, but has it actually generalised to being able to use those words to support them to respond to um, a written task? Turns out, no. It turned out, no, in (laughs) in that first group because we didn't do enough of that. Yeah. we made it better. Um, Well, the thing is, it actually actually gave me, it actually informed the clinical decision I made with with a couple of them because I said, you know what? you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to actually put them in an essay intensive. I actually taught them like the very specifics of those, of how to write an essay. I had like a multiple baseline. I had like three probes at the start because it was the one just before the vocab group, the one after the vocab group, and then, and then the one just before the essay intensive. And then I did the intensive. And then after that, that's they, when they got improved. better at writing. Yeah, like they got better at writing. Related yeah. to those words, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and dare I use the F word, but function. <laughs> you know, yeah. like what's the function mm. of what we're... Yeah, yeah. if you they, know. you know, who cares if they can say the definition of explain, yeah. if they can't respond to yeah. something that says explain how this character, you know, blah, 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 mm. whatever it might be in a, in a written response, which is what they need to be able to do in their essays at school. From then on, once we learned that is then the next time we actually tried to do more teaching of how these words are used in different ways. And we taught them more about how to learn words. So we looked more at like the phonology and morphology and etymology of words, which was something that we learned from the, the, this the podcast. Yeah, vocabulary one. And so, yeah, so this idea that you can have measures that are very closely related, like the definitions, but you can have measures that might be more distally related, which might be, their, is their written work changing? Does their teacher say that, you know, this has gotten better? And so thinking and planning out those measures at the beginning of your therapy block helps you know what you're going to take and when you're going to take those measures. Yeah. And I think the purpose of planning means that thinking of research papers here now, but the the benefit of planning ahead and saying, this is how I'm going to measure it is you then can't go back and data mine for something to show that it's proved, Mm -hmm. like it's worked Mm -hmm. the way that you said it was going to work because you've decided how to evaluate it at the end. And I think that's one of the risks with our innate biases is that we want Mm -hmm. things to work. We want our clients to have the best possible outcomes because we care. Mm -hmm. You know, we really want them to achieve whatever it is that they or their families want them to achieve. But, um, you know, thinking about one of the key aspects of that um, process is what is our goal you know can we paint a target you know that we're aiming for on the wall but then we can you know throw the dart or whatever it is you know at it which is our intervention but if we haven't actually measured how it's going to land it could be landing on just a big blob or it could actually be you know a, a dartboard that has layers of how proximate to the center are we or how distal are we and I think that um, if we do it I could easily move the dartboard around <laughs> around to make it look however I want it to that's look right. that's true yeah. yeah that's true yeah and and being honest like that you know sometimes we haven't collected the right measures and we go oh oh no like this hasn't gotten at what we wanted to to find mm. or this hasn't worked for this kid but then it's like what you know, you can start to look into why they might not have responded to that intervention. What was the missing element? And so it's this con. This is comes back to the idea of practice-based evidence. Is that then we change it the next time? Um, so we're constantly looking at what you know has and hasn't worked. And you can start to see kids that might be similar as well. Oh, this kid's a bit like that one I had two groups ago who didn't respond unless I 
use this specific type of teaching strategy. And it might sound a little unscientific, but you know, I say this all the time, there is no, because I mean, my areas are language and literacy mainly, but there is no speech pathology Bible that tells you, you open up to the three years, the three year, six month page, and it tells you for language intervention, how to do absolutely every area or domain of language. It doesn't exist. If it did, I'd buy it, you know. <laughs> I mean, the the closest we've got is some textbooks, but they don't really Mm. go down to the absolute nitty gritty. So what we have to do is we have to look at the evidence and sometimes Mm. make informed decisions. And that's, you know, parents that I work with will know that I'll come in and say, hey, so there's this intervention, Mm. but your child may not fit perfectly into the Mm -hmm. research study, but I think it's actually the best thing for us to be looking at we're going to give it a go. Like, are you happy to give it a go? What we're going to do is we're going to collect some data at the beginning, the middle and the end, or however we've established our data collection process. Um, Then let's evaluate it together. But often the piece is also, hey, did you think that it worked? Because parents and, and, you know, have great insight. My fate, one of my favorite outcome measures is um, phone conversations with their relatives. You know, mum will come in and say, hey, um, grandma said they spoke so much clearer on the phone this week and I'm like great go straight into my case notes <laughs> done yeah, but what I... fantastic feedback you know grandma said grandma loves him or her or them whoever mm. however you know um, they're going to be honest <laughs> you mm. know so I think that thinking about it but you know um, having that plan for outcome measurements is just so important. I'm really interested because obviously, Celine, you, you've, you're the director um, and you've seen amazing insights that you can get from Rosie and, and brought this in, but you've got a broader team here. Mm. How do you ensure that your whole team is across these sorts of concepts? You know, what sort of training might be involved for people who might be listening and thinking, hey, this is great, but I've got more than myself to think about here. One of the things that we we did was we actually asked our, our team uh, what they what they collaboration. Found who would have thought? Yeah, I know. And by we, I mean Rosie and <laughs> I would have asked. Them. Now I said, okay, yeah. what helped you guys? With yeah. This? So every quarter we have something called sweatpants day where we actually like suspend services. We have nobody coming in. Everybody sits down. We have this massive meeting. It's mostly to clean up the whole place because it's such a mess. But like at the beginning, we're sort of just like, okay, we'll just use this for some PD. We talked about this new service delivery model. We talked about therapy plans. And then we generate like as we did it, we actually started to develop some templates and talk to the team about what they were finding challenging. A lot of the things that they said they found challenging was actually telling parents about it. So you were saying, Sean, you know, you sometimes walk in to a therapy session and say, well, your kid doesn't fit completely into this particular program, but I'm going to, we're going to try it and we're going to do this. And what we found, because we have a lot of like graduate speech pathologists that are about three years out ish, they're not comfortable with saying things like that to, to parents. So we have to help them get comfortable with having conversations like that without sort of making them feel vulnerable, I suppose. Like, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's a vulnerability that sometimes when you are more experienced, you can sort of say, and when you've got a really strong rapport with a client, you can sort of put yourself into that. But yeah, we, we definitely found that they needed some support around introducing the ideas to their clients mm. and yeah. and even just how how they say it like sometimes what they do is they would say so I think after that we're going to take an intentional break and they would do this thing with their voice where they would make it sound like a question and you know we would sort of have to tell them we need you to I think it's important that you talk slowly give them space like we did role playing as well because they identified that as as a challenge for them. So we role played it and we found that a lot of them tend to talk way too much and they don't listen to spaces. Yeah. yeah. So lots of, we did a massive training on active listening. We did some improvisation, which wasn't necessarily associated with clinical stuff. Like we tried to make it fun. It's not just about here's our PowerPoint presentation on, on how to do a therapy plan. They, they write therapy plans okay. Everybody could get better, but it was actually delivering it and feeling comfortable delivering it and then 
feeling comfortable with coming, like with answering questions that get thrown at them. You've identified so many key points there that a, you know, as an early career clinician, you want to demonstrate that you know what you're doing. But I still remember being a, you know, 21 year old and thinking by hell, I, you know, <laughs> I, I feel like I don't know what I'm doing, but I had to sort of be professional and showcase that. And I think definitely as I've gotten older, I'm more willing to say, I'm not sure, but I'm going to find out and we're going to work this out together. But it's also that vulnerability. How can you be seen to be vulnerable in this space and share that you don't know? And that's why, you know, often some people probably grimace when I talk on the podcast, but I'm I'm often saying, you know, I don't like, you know, we don't know all of these things and we're working these out. But by, I think, pulling people together and starting to share these, you know, stories and discussions, we show that actually we're all working hard towards the same similar cause. Mm. Um, but I also think that that's really hard to teach. And so I love that you said it wasn't just a PowerPoint presentation. No, on the board. <laughs> no there was a lot of role playing. I actually like sat it's down with an improv instructor yeah. and talked to him about like, how do I teach my my team to, to respond like to yeah. things that are not expected? I feel like that's so important. Like we we take for granted a lot of our, communication skills that we have as experienced clinicians and you so I see that when I when I am when I look at my team who is less experienced than me because yeah I I also think that as as the the director allowing them to say I'm like it's okay for you to say you don't know like just saying to them giving yourself permission to say I don't know yeah you are allowed to tell them you don't know and that you'll come you can come back and if they complain about that, I will I will back you up. I am on yeah. your side. So allowing them to, giving them permission is yeah. I think really important. Yeah. One of the things that we found useful as well when we were introducing the concepts is telling our team to not try and do this for all your clients all at once. Oh, yeah. So that sort of gradual introduction of, of changes and it was easier to do you know when you have a new client but it might be harder to do when you have an established client that's always come one-to-one for the past 10 years and then you're telling them they've got to go to a group that might be a harder sell than a new client where you set up this from the start and so we said you know just try maybe one or two of your new clients that are coming in we'll do the therapy plan we'll build a therapy plan we had sort of targets like maybe by the end of 2021 we'll try and get 50% of your clients on therapy plans. And then by this time, so we sort of looked at realistic targets in changing our our service delivery model so that it wasn't too overwhelming for our team. Yeah. I think it also built their confidence to work with new clients Mm -hmm. and establishing those things, those parameters with new clients. So once they realized, oh, wow, I can do this, Mm -hmm. they were able to, a lot of them were able to just take that and move it move it on to, to clients that, that they were currently seeing as well. And I think the biggest change for me in my clinical practice is actually have, having become a parent, the realisation that I am not, because I work mainly with, in, with children, I am not that child's parent. Mm. <laughs> um, and in fact, I actually don't make decisions for a family. The family makes the decision for the family. And that's been a huge change in the way in which I work, because if they're making informed decisions, they got to understand what we're doing. Otherwise, it's just me coming in and telling them, I'm the expert, you're the recipient of my expertise, sit down and do as you're told. Mm. And I can tell you 99 times out of 100, that has not led to the outcomes that I had hoped to achieve. Mm. Mm. Um, you know, mm. all of a sudden, you really come to understand why they haven't done the activities. Yeah. Yes. Because you're Definitely. like, oh, yeah. wow. Okay. <laughs> I'm so happy that you're here and fed and fully dressed. You know, yeah. like that is worth celebrating, guys. Yeah. Um, And so that means that I better understand how to interpret my data, because if I have that context, then I can actually interpret it through that lens. Mm. Yeah. And I think that comes totally back to idea of practice-based evidence is that our clients have these situations around them, like life, like, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I was saying to Celine, like so many of my little ones that I see now their parents are working full time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so sometimes working out with the parent, like when are we going to be able to, you know, do this intervention because you don't see them till like 7.30 at night or mm-hmm. whatever. It's 
And that's the messiness of the real world. And that's why if we can collect that evidence and still go, okay, this, this worked, despite the fact that we had to, you know, do this at, in the car or, you know, whatever, like yeah. we, we had to change what it might've looked like from the research. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that taking that and understanding it and unpacking it, it's really helpful as in the last few years, particularly probably the last five years, we're starting to see that feedback, not just being the researchers delivering content for us to consume, but clinician research partnerships are growing significantly. Mm -hmm. I mean, Rosie, you're a great example of that. I hope myself one day to, you know, really bridge this, you know, research clinical gap. You know, Celine's obviously seen value in embedding research in what you do in your business. So I think that I'm really excited for the next sort of 15, 20, 25 years as people are doing research on things that are clinically applicable, um, you know, and things that actually will help us do our jobs and not, you know, not they actually reflect our day-to-day work as well. Yeah. Which, and I think that's why something like doing um, single case designs are actually becoming increasingly popular because people are recognizing in the medicine field, there's been more of that push towards that idea of, um, they, I think they call it like precision medicine. So mm. that idea that people are individuals and not everyone responds to this drug the same way. Mm-hmm. So there is a bit of a push to move towards SCEDs or single case experimental designs as, as a way to really collect that, the rich data about whether interventions work across all like different types of people and different types of situations. Yeah. yeah. I might jump into our next question, which is, You've kind of touched on this already, but do you have any examples for clinicians who might be listening and wondering, you know, this sounds like a lot or this sounds like a big change. How might they go about applying this in their own work? And I think the first step of that was little bit by little bit, but any other advice? Rose has always been more into research than me. And when I was still like a baby clinician, I would always like call her and say, what do I do? How do I be better? And um, she she would sometimes she would say, "Oh, here's here's some ideas on multi- how to do a multiple baseline." And I would be like, "Okay, okay, I'm gonna try that." And I actually picked PA because it seemed like the easiest thing to do, like to to be able to measure. There were already like outcome measures, like the SPAT and things like that to do. I tried to plan it out. I did have a lot of kids that was do- that were doing literacy at the time, so I. I, I deliberately picked it because it was the largest, one of the largest amounts of kids on my caseload. My data for that is terrible. Like <laughs> it's really, really bad. It looks bad. And um, I suppose that that's the next piece of advice is that just prepare to fail and suck. Like, and look at it and go, yep, I'm going to try something else later. Cause it's, you can have all the best intentions in the world. Doesn't mean you have, like, and you did nothing wrong. It's just, it's just hard. hard. It's really hard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And in the real world, it's not like clean and pretty and like, oh yeah, because like I'm gonna get this at session six and then like the kid's sick for three weeks. Oh, I can't get that now. Like so it, it doesn't look like this beautiful graph, like it yeah. might necessarily look in, in the study you've read. And you and you might forget to take data, even <laughs> like because you've got 20 other kids on your caseload. So that's that's kind of I had all these fantastic good intentions and didn't really work out that way because sometimes then the parent will come to you in the middle of it going, oh, yeah, this isn't a priority for us anymore. Like we'd like to want to change. do something else. Mm-hmm. We want to change it. And, and that was like one of the challenges because we didn't have like therapy plans way back when I was trying to do this. So the thing is, it's like as soon as the parents say, oh, we changed our minds, I would be like, I guess I'm changing my mind too so the therapy plan has sort of stopped that in its tracks because like I'm just like yeah we'll change our minds after this I'm gonna do this first because we haven't even gotten the results yeah realizing that it's actually going to take you a lot of time to start with Mm. often people think that the first thing that you know they time they do these sorts of things they're like oh my goodness it's taken so long I'm never doing this again um but you actually do get faster right yes faster yeah 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 and and sometimes you go okay well like I was just saying to one of my therapists, because I spent like an hour analyzing narratives after our storytelling group, I said, mm, we're going to have to, you know, just make that outcome measure a bit smaller because I can't spend that long doing that. You know, you are always continuing to evaluate, okay, well, what can I do in clinical practice? Because we do have a lot of time constraints as well mm. um, in how, how much data we're able to 
not just take, but also analyze. Uh, uh, that's been one of my biggest learnings from not so much quantitative research, but qualitative research or more mixed methods is mm. that um, more is not always better. Mm. Actually getting it right and getting that information for a small number of um, you know, clients or a small number of occasions gives you so much rich information. You know, I used to think, oh, let's get, you know, for everybody, everybody will do this. But nowadays, I think if I can just get it right for, for this um, particular goal for this child, um, you know, and it's just a couple of things, that's actually going to give me more than doing everything. Mm-hmm you know, yeah. and I can't measure everything. Nobody's going to give me the time or money mm-hmm. to assess, intervene and measure absolutely everything. So yeah. it does make it tricky. Um, and I feel like we've all been vulnerable and probably I know there are a lot of families um, uh, who are probably listening in and thinking, my goodness, you've really, you know, opened the curtain, you know, or unva- <laughs> unveiled <laughs> ourselves. The veil that they talk about in theatre, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but and, and perhaps you've already touched on this question. So I might ask it in a slightly different way. I, I was going to ask how much, how do you ensure your families and clients are aware of these measures? And I think, you know, you've touched on that in that training aspect, but perhaps maybe even more so you might have some advice for families and who might be listening in. How could they actually approach their speech pathologist to maybe ask or discuss outcome measures with about their child? Yeah, so... Um... One of the things, like we have talked a bit about what what we do in terms of training our therapists, but the other thing is we create a space for parents and, and therapists to discuss their child's therapy plan. So we have some parent-only sessions um, at key points at the beginning when therapy plans have been made so that the parent has that space and the therapist has that space to, you know, to have those discussions. And I think sometimes that is part of the difficulty for parents is that like when you get in the room and you know especially with little kids they're, they're you know whoa look at all these toys what's going on like it's so exciting that it's hard to talk to your therapist when you know you're sort of managing your child the therapist is working with your child you're talking about you know there's so many things going on you've got siblings whatever and so creating a, a time with your therapist that might not have your child there so it is a parent only session so that you have that headspace to go okay well what are we doing what are we actually doing this block that way parents feel prepared for it as well when I was handing over a particular child to one of the grads earlier this year what I did was I actually built it into his therapy plan I said in this week and in this week it's parent only don't have the kid come in because he is really tough and you're going to need to talk to this these parents about how he's going and you need to we need to schedule in these these breaks and the parents responded really really well i've even done those online as well yes yeah that's what he does i was going to say having the um you know the time saver of not driving in and Mm, from the clinic you know we can just catch up on teams or zoom or whatever yeah and sometimes they'll do it at a, t- at a different time so when their child's at daycare it can be really good because then they've got their full attention to be able to mm. to talk to you whereas sometimes it's really hard if they've got their kids in the background we know what that's like being a parent trying to concentrate oh, on Zoom yes. your kids. <laughs> so some key questions we um, again we asked our team a little bit about this so what should parents be asking their speech pathologist I think the first one is what are our goals at the moment so sometimes we still get feedback that parents aren't quite sure what their goals are and then how will we know when we've achieved our goals that really links into that outcome measure piece and what will we measure what are we going to be measuring to look at progress in these goals so there's some key questions that parents can, you know, throw at their speech pathologists. I'm sure they'll be happy for the challenge. But I think it is helpful. I, I'll put in a little plug. There's a, um, a resource on the DLD project website, which is questions to ask speech pathologists. This is around assessment. I'm thinking now I really should do one around mm. intervention, goal setting and, mm. and outcome measures. And I want families to feel that they're always welcome in a safe space. And it sounds like you guys are both on the same page, you know, creating that safe space to ask questions. Um, I think it's really important to make sure that they feel like they can contribute to 
and, and that what they say is valued by their clinician. Yeah. It's the onus is on us to make sure that they know that they are valued, I feel. So in your opinion, uh, what do you both hope to see in the future for DLD, whether it's in Australia or around the world? It might be from a research perspective or a clinical perspective or service delivery. What, what would you like to see? For me, I would like DLD to be recognised by the NDIS oh, as, a, um, <laughs> as, a, as a disability in itself. It drives me crazy that I have to, like I have worked with so many kids over the last 11 years. They've been coming to see me pretty much for 11 years. Yeah. And, and, and then the NDIS comes out, what, five years ago? And these kids are still not eligible, like to, to have, um, you know, to, to get funding, even though their parents have spent a fortune seeing me already. Mm. Um, you know, I, I've encouraged them to go see psychologists to try and see if there's anything else. And when it comes back, oh no, everything else is fine. You would think that that's something to celebrate. Yes. You know, my child does not have co-occurring difficulties. It's just DLD. It's kind of bittersweet because now their parents' burden to they have to continue to keep paying it because it's not, it's not enough. It's not bad. Not considered enough. enough. Mm. Yeah. Big challenge. Massive challenge. Yeah. I think for me, I really want to see more awareness of um, DLD within the general community, particularly within um, early childhood sectors and, and educators, just having greater knowledge of DLD and the impacts for, for children. And then from a research perspective, my little research side gig is looking at late talkers and how we can start to differentially diagnose children potentially earlier on so that we can find the right interventions and be able to provide, yeah, that early intervention that's, yeah, the right kind and, and as most as efficient as it, as it can be. Um, Pulling together two of your points, one around NDIS and one around the, you know, um, I guess the raising awareness is that um, this year's uh, DLD Awareness Day, which is on the 14th of October, it's theme is around growing with DLD, knowing that, you know, it's a lifelong condition, mm -hmm. they're not going to grow out of it. Um, at hoping to have some more of that grassroots um, awareness raising as well. So watch this space, um, you know, and, and visit rattle.org if you're interested in learning more um, because, yeah, 14th of October, hoping to, you know, light up the world in purple and yellow to help raise awareness of DLD. So get involved. Okay. I've held you up for so long today, but we could, I'm sure we could keep talking for a lot longer. <laughs> but as we're drawing to a close, I've got one more question that I ask all of our guests. Uh, at the DLD project, we're terrible at this, but we try to focus on self-care and finding time to breathe in our really busy days. What do you both do to look after yourselves? One of the things that I've been doing is playing with my kids, actually sitting down and playing with them and making time to go, okay, this is playtime. And that hasn't, that hasn't just come from me needing self-care, but it's come from me going, why is my kid acting up? Oh, maybe because I'm at work a lot. So, yeah, really taking the time to connect with my kids in very focused way. I'm doing a fitness challenge with my mom and my sister. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. This, Amazing. Over the last three months, there was like one where we couldn't have sugar, one where we just had to take 10,000 steps a day. It's just been a lot more, like it's so much more fun to do it with someone else oh, than absolutely. trying to do it by yourself. <laughs> I was say, I haven't actually ever said this on the podcast because I'm terrible at it. But one thing I've been trying to do in the last month is I had a shoulder injury earlier in the year and I've gotten back into yoga and it's been great. Mm -hmm. I've really, I did yoga for years and years and years and then I stopped with COVID mm. and just getting back into it. My goodness, it's so nice to actually have an hour to myself to stop mm. and think. Uh, actually, sometimes not think. It's like yeah. using visualization to like push the thoughts away. So I can, think. Yeah, that's the hard part, right? Just relax. Okay, so to just recap, what are the some of the key points that you would love our listeners to take away from from our chat? Do therapy plans? Do therapy plans? That's that's clinician specific. Yeah. Any others? Um, Start small, like try this for one child on your caseload. So looking at 
developing a therapy plan with some goals and some outcome measures. In terms of like for therapists wanting to think about how they could start to look at it more broadly, talk to your supervisors, ask for help because it's, it's not something that you can do alone like for your whole caseload. It is something you need to go, hey, I was listening to this and this sounds really cool. Um, so yeah, talk to you, like, I'm, I supervise, like Selena and I supervise our team and when they tell us something, we're like, oh, wow, like, let's look into that. Like we're, we really want, uh, we're really open to what our, our team tells us. For parents, ask your speechy what the goals are and how they're being measured. Absolutely. So I think they're three great takeaways because I think then, you know, when when considering the clinical work we do, I think we're always wanting to improve. And for families, you know, knowing that it's actually okay to ask questions um, mm. and to really understand what it is that you're coming in and doing. And in fact, I'd even argue that right down to a fairly young age, you know, our, our clients, you know, th- that mm. we work with could benefit from knowing what working yeah. or maybe not how oh, we're measuring yeah. it, but, you know. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Like, I, I even talk to them about how I'm measuring it. Like if I'm going to sit there and make them say a list of, you know, our words that they can't say. I'm going to say, look, the reason we're doing this is because mm-hmm. otherwise it's like, why you, Why would I do that to someone? Yeah. Yeah. I do tell my kids, like, why I'm doing it. A lot of, the, my, my kids are a lot older though. So. Yeah. yeah. I was say, mine are a lot older too. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much again for joining us on the Talking DLD podcast. I'm so glad that we've been able to arrange a time and connect and um, have this discussion. I'm really looking forward to um, sharing it with our listeners. And as I say, you know, there'll be information in the, in the um, link for the podcast, but if you do have any questions, please reach out. We'd be happy to chat anytime. Thanks, Celine. Thanks, Rosie. Um, talk Thank to you both you soon. Thanks again for joining us on this episode of the Talking DLD podcast. If you'd like to support our work and expand your DLD skills, be sure to head to our website, thedldproject.com, to explore our many training options. Don't forget that we also offer private workshops for clinicians, clinics, and organisations. Email us at connect at thedldproject.com to explore training options for your team.